All right, good morning. Well, uh, this has been a fun last couple of days. We had, uh, well, first of all, this morning we had our men, men's and women's Sunday school class. I know for the men, uh, it was pretty, a pretty awesome time together, if you guys missed that, um, just kind of getting into dealing with shame and guilt and uh, being transparent and honest with our stories. It was awesome. So it was good, good to see, uh, good to hear. Um, we had on Friday night, if you happen to see around you, you may see Nerf bullets. <laughs> They were all over this place on Friday night. We probably had 100 dads and kids around here, and, uh, and they literally were all over the place. So they probably will be found for the next year or so. Um, you will find them sitting around because they were flying everywhere. So we had a good time on, uh, on Friday night. All right, well, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Um, Hebrews 9 here, God, is uh, a lot of words, a lot of things here uh, to talk about. I pray, God, you would help, uh, help me be clear, help me explain it. Uh, the way uh, it, is, it is to be told, and that, God, that uh, you would work in each of our hearts by your Spirit to bring these words, these living words, um, God, to bear upon our souls uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is, uh, this is one of the most uncomfortable passages in all of Hebrews. You may have noticed that uh, in, the, in the reading of that, because this chapter flows and oozes with blood, Right? I mean, you, if, you, if you were listening to that, you probably heard the word, I don't know, I didn't even count how many times the word blood is used in this chapter, but it's in a couple of times about in every single verse. And while uh, blood may make some of us queasy to think about, I know I am one of those people, um, our culture seems somewhat obsessed with that. Um, it shows up all over pop culture. Uh, there is the Academy Award winning film, There Will Be Blood, the award nominee, Blood Diamond, as well as Rambo, First Blood, which shockingly was never nominated. I'm not sure why. <laughs> there's this cultural obsession uh, with horror films and vampire flicks and the zombie apocalypse. I mean, I don't know where zombies came from the last decade, but they're all over the place. Um, they're in the movies. They even hijacked Pride and Prejudice a couple years ago. Uh, TV shows with the highest uh, viewership of any cable series, The Walking Dead, video games, uh, music as far back as Michael Jackson's Thriller. Even I found uh, this week the CDC published a novel entitled Preparedness 101, Zombie Apocalypse. And the Weather Channel it was always desperate for ratings, right? They named their own storms. Have you seen this? Um, I read USA Today yesterday. They were, I think they were taking a shot at uh, the Weather Channel. They said, the storm has been named Winter Storm Maya, the one up in Seattle, by the Weather Channel, period. No other private agent, weather agency, comma, nor the, nor the Weather Service uses that name, period. <laughs> they move on. They're just making fun of the Weather Channel. Anyway, the Weather Channel ran a series uh, called How to Weather the Zombie Apocalypse, right? Trying to get their ratings up on that one. There are Zombie 5K, Zombie Walks. Uh, zombie Walks are supposed to be protests. <laughs> I'm not sure what they're protesting uh, in doing that. Uh, and there's even, uh, for you Lily folks, there's scientific funding, literally, literally scientific funding research. You're going like, I needed funding, and this is what they gave it to? Uh, being done on the neuroscience of zombie brains. It's being funded, and we wonder what's wrong with our country. Um, there's also a new pop culture title given to people. Oh, this is this funny. There's a new pop culture title given to people. You ever encountered this person that's walking with their cell phone up to their ear and oblivious to the rest of mankind, right? You know what I'm talking about? And they just run into people and they're like walking around slowly and trying to get around them. Ever had this happen before? There's a new name for them. They call them smombies. Smombies. Smartphone zombies. That's pretty good, right? They're smombies. So if you see somebody, call them a smombie if they run into you when they're holding onto their cell phone. Anyway. Point is today, we're getting, it's going to be gory, it's going to be bloody, some of you may love that, some of you hate that, but if you're into that, this is your Sunday, all right? Now, this blood, uh, we talk about blood, it right, means a lot of things. 
there are some very important things, not just in the Bible, but just in life in general. The book of Leviticus is going to tell us that life is in the blood, right? What that means is blood symbolizes life. If it's flowing inside of you, um, that's a good thing. If your blood is flowing outside of you, that's a bad thing, right? That symbolizes blood. You may need a tourniquet or a Band-Aid or call 911, something like that. Depends on how bad it is. So blood flowing symbolizes something. If it's flowing outside of you, something's broken, right? Something is wrong. Um, but blood also in ancient times as well as modern times symbolizes guilt. We use phrases like, uh, you know, they had, the blood is on their hands, right? It's the idea that the guilt is on them. They are guilty. The most important element, especially in our study today, is that blood shows that sin both brings and demands death. Let me say that again. Blood shows us that sin both brings and demands death. The requirement of blood shows us that we have a real problem here. Okay? We have a real problem with God. Um, but it also shows, we'll find out today too, is that God has a lot of love for us. Because by the time we're done today, we're going to find out that God, while we're requiring blood, even our own blood for our own sin, he is instead going to give his own blood, his own life on our behalf. We're going to find out uh, his love for us because of that. So in our text today, we're going to take a good look at the Old Testament sacrificial system. And you're like, yes, this is awesome. Um, we're going to look at the location of those sacrifices, the ceremonies, and all of it points to Jesus. It's going to be like show and tell time. I'm going to have a lot of pictures on the screen. You're going to love it. All right. Remember show and tell back when you were in elementary school? It's awesome. All right. So let's start with the building. Okay. We've got to set all this, this whole passage we read. Um, got to, to set this up so you can see it. So let's start with the building. There are four buildings or modifications of existing buildings in Jewish history. If you're an Old Testament scholar, you may know these. The first one was what was called the tabernacle. You may have heard that phrase before. Sometimes it's called the tent of Moses. It's the first thing that was built as a place uh, for these sacrifices. The next one was called Solomon's temple. After that was Zerubbabel's temple. And then you got Herod's temple, which is the one that Jesus is in when he has the whip like Indiana Jones and send everybody out. That is the last one. That's the fourth one, really, fourth version of that. Uh, today, we're going to focus on the first one, Moses' tent or tabernacle that was back in Exodus. And it's so important, matter of fact, that throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 50 chapters deal with this tent in some form or fashion. Okay, so that's a pretty important feature uh, in the Old Testament. So let's talk about that. The tent or the tabernacle, as you'll see on the screen there, was on a campus um, that was fenced in and looked, uh, located at the heart of Israel. So you see this here. This is kind of an idea of what it looked like. And then you see our next picture actually shows us, shows us that it was actually in the middle of where the tribe would settle, right? When they were walking through the wilderness or going their places, they'd pop this tent down, they'd set up a fence, and everybody would, in, their, in their 12 tribes would be camping around, and this would be at the very heart um, of, of Israel. And the area of that, of that area, that space right there, was 150 feet long, 70 feet wide. Think about um, half the size of a football field. Maybe helpful for that. Um, then the tent itself, you'll see back in the corner with the smoke coming up there, was a, kind of a portable tent shrine, okay, is what it was. And it was 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, and then 45 feet long. So think of a, a 15 foot deep swimming pool, basically. In-ground swimming pool, if it was 50 feet all the way, that's a kind of the size of, the, of this tent. It had two compartments inside of it. Uh, the first 30 feet made up what's called the holy place. And the last 15 feet, the very back part of this tent, uh, there was a curtain taken up uh, what became known as the most holy place. Right? So an Israelite... Average Israelite walking in, when he entered the campus, he only got to see two things at the very front. You can see this in that picture there. An altar 
of burnt offerings in the front and a large bronze altar with a horn on each corner where they would tie down their offerings and sacrifice their offerings. There was also, they may be able to see towards the tent, a bronze laver and a wash basin, which was the exclusive use of the priests. So average Joe Israelite couldn't touch either one of those. He couldn't go anywhere near the tent. He could only just barely step into that big fenced-in area. As for the priests, one got to go, okay, one got to go into that first part. Remember we talked the tents broke up in two parts there? One got to go in that first part there. You can see the tents kind of opened up for the back part. But the front part there, one got to go once a year, chosen by lot, for a week of his life. He would camp out in there, basically. Uh, and this is what he would do. He would be in there taking care of things. Um, and then the, another guy called the high priest would go into that second area once a year called Yom Kippur. Now, in the holy place, uh, you see in the front there, there was a table, okay, called the table of presence. You may have heard that if you read the Old Testament. Um, and then also that it had 12 loaves of bread that symbolized each of the tribes. They had to re be replaced every week, obviously. Bread gets stale. They had to replace it with new bread uh, to put up there. And so every Sabbath day, he did that. There was a lampstand and an altar of incense all in there, too. Behind that second curtain, uh, where that light is kind of showing there in the picture, uh, you'll find behind that curtain a gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. Uh, inside that Ark contained stone tablets uh, of Moses and the Ten Commandments, a uh, gold jar of manna that they kind of collected into a jar to kind of show, as well as Aaron's budded staff, which may be familiar to you in a story where it was proven that he was the leader of the group and God made his staff uh, blossom. The Ark is said to have a cherubim on each, an angel on each side, uh, facing each other, wings extended over the ark, kind of pointing at each other. If you're not referencing this at all, if you ever seen Indiana Jones, um, you kind of maybe remember a little bit of that, you know, the, I can't, you know, when they opened it up and it, like, the ghosts, like, peel each, everybody's face off and stuff like that. Um, that thing, I can't say that that actually was real or that actually would happen, but they probably wouldn't have opened that anyway. I, I digress. All right, what, um, so what would worship look like in this tent? Well, let's start with the daily worship, what it would look like. If you were a Jewish person at the time, here's church to you, all right? So you're thinking, man, if you think this is, you think this is rough, okay? This, is, this was rough, all right? The priest, who was chosen by Lot, all right, had to, every day he was camping out in that tent, right? Every day he had to trim the wicks, uh, add oil to the lampstands, put incense on the altar of incense, and on Saturday he had to, again, change out that bread and put in new bread there. Outside the tent, though, was like someone kicked over an anthill, because outside the tent, in that little space, it was busy. There was stuff going on all the time. Uh, the place was just humming. People would line up to go into that front, you see, kind of maroon um, area, or well, actually more like a purple color there. That's where they would enter into that space, and it would go into there where that altar is where you see smoke coming up. And so uh, they would line up one after the other to come to basically what would be kind of like a slaughterhouse, right? Uh, if you're wondering why, there was only, there's only an altar of burnt offerings and a basin of water. That's it. That's the only two things there. It's because the priests had to clean up a lot, right? They had to do a lot of cleaning. Um, their job was 24-7, constantly doing this uh, all the time. Um, they were on the job all the time. The people were coming to them repeatedly. Why were they coming repeatedly? Because they felt guilty. They were trying to find peace uh, for their guilty conscience. There was such a need, matter of fact, this was so busy and such a need that God gave the job to do this to one-twelfth of the entire population, okay? Let me give you that little perspective, right? One of the tribes, out of all the twelve, was devoted to this one job. They were called the Levites, good. See, we can do this, all right? Levites, all right, is what they were called, and they were the priests. There was a whole, it was one-twelfth. Think, just think about that for a moment. To put that in perspective, one-twelfth of the, of the population of the United States would be the entire state of Texas, 
So imagine like the entire state of Texas became priests, you know? That'd be, yeehaw, you know? <laughs> Hook them horns or something like that. I don't know what they would do if they did that back then. Um, I digress again. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was a gory affair, okay? It was gory. We got a twelfth of the tribe was like doing this all the time, right? They're constantly sacrificing. And I, I did some math for you, which may be a little gory for you, but I did some math. During the thousand plus years of the Old Covenant, uh, there were more than a million animal sacrifices, at least. Okay, if we just give it that number, say a million. Considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled about a gallon of blood or two, each goat, maybe let's say a quart, uh, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. Okay, so here's the idea. That is 2.5 million gallons of blood. You're like, this is going downhill fast, all right? There's 2.5 million gallons of blood. If you were building a pool, that would be almost 700 feet long. Think two football fields long pool. It's a long pool. 25 feet deep, all right, all the way across. That's the distance if you ever go to Disney World and you drop on the Tower of Terror, it's that big. So next time you're dropping, just think about the amount of blood you'd be going down into. If you don't know what that is, think about the Great Wall of China, the height. That's kind of what we're looking at. That's how, that's how big. I mean, the two football fields and 25 feet deep and so much blood was spilled, all right, in the Old Covenant trying to cover and make up and, and for all the sin. Matter of fact, it was so bloody that during the New Testament times, during the times of Jesus, they had built a trough, okay, that was constructed to go from the temple down into the Kidron Valley just to kind of dispose of the blood. It would just pour out the back of the temple and just go down into the valley. It was pretty gross, which became known as Gehenna, okay, this may make some connections for you, uh, the trash heap, basically, of things that they burned, the trash they threw, and the blood that flew, Jesus being referred to that as hell, okay, a symbol or kind of what hell was like. So this was uh, the daily worship, okay, that was what happened every single day. Now, set that aside a second, I know I have a lot to explain to do because I've got to help you understand this chapter. There's also a very special day in the Old Testament, a very particular day, um, that was um, muy importante. All right, there we go. See all my Spanish there? You're getting it all today. We're doing grammar, kids. You love this, right? Um, I don't know Spanish, but muy importante is kind of fun to say. It was a very important day, all right? It was called Yom Kippur, all right? That was the word that was used. It was also called the Day of what? Atonement. There we go, Day of Atonement. Uh, so the high priest, during that day, underwent an incredible preparation. Now, follow me on this, because this we're going to bring this full circle, because we're going to see how this all ties to Jesus in the end. The high priest, his preparation, seven days before the Day of Atonement, the priest would leave his home. Um, he would leave his home on that day, and he would camp out in the tent. And then on the morning of Yom Kippur, the high priest offered a burnt offering. You'll see this in Numbers 29. And following this, he would ritually bathe his entire body, and instead of putting on his traditional kind of colorful robes, he would put on a pure white uh, one with a white kind of sash around his waist and a white turban on his head. And so you see that kind of symbolized there. You see the difference between what he would look like normally in his kind of red and blue colors. And on this day, he, he, though, he wore all white. So he was, uh, again, symbolizing he is free from defilement. He has done his sacrifices. He has done all his things. He's ready to stand before God, as it were, for the people. And so next, he would place his hands on the head of a bull. This is what he would do. He'd walk out. He would put his hands on the head of a bull and repented for himself and for his household. So he's just dealing with his family right now, right? He's just trying to get things right on that side. Uh, he would leave the bull for a few moments, and he would turn to two goats. Okay, they have two goats that would be chosen. Aren't they cute? Thank you. And, and, and those guys would die, too. Throat slit. It was awesome. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you're with PETA, I just want you to know there were animals hurt in this process. 
So, um, so he would turn to these two, uh, these two goats and he would cast lots over them, all right? One was designated for God and the other one was called a scapegoat, all right? You may be familiar with that in modern day culture, we still use that phrase. Uh, see, that, see this in Leviticus 16. He would place a crimson wool, would be tied to the horn of the scapegoat, a different thread would be tied to around the, the goat to be slaughtered, all right? So next he, would, he, would, uh, he filled these, a censer with burning coals and, uh, from the altar of the burnt offerings. He would enter into the Holy of Holies, right? So he'd go behind that second curtain where he poured two handfuls of incense on the coals so, the, so a cloud would kind of come up, right? That's kind of the whole point of that. And so the cloud would come up and, uh, and he, would, um, he would then exit, return back to the bull, sacrifice the bull, brought the blood from the bull back into the Holy of Holies and then sprinkle some all over the ground. After this, he would go back to the two goats, right? He would sacrifice the one goat, it was designated as an offering to God, and perform the same ritual in the most holy place, right? He would take out the blood, the blood of the bull the goat, and he would sprinkle that as well. So the goat was a sin offering for the people of Israel. The bull was for him and his family. Upon emerging, this gets kind of gross, but this is just giving you what it, what it is, he'd mix the blood of the bull and of the goat, and he would put them on the horns of the altar uh, for burnt offerings in front of the people. And he would sprinkle the altar seven times to consecrate it, and then he would turn around and sprinkle the people with the blood. And then this just gets really gross now, but this is what they would do, okay? They would sprinkle the blood out there. And then after all that, okay, after all that was done, uh, came the, the actual most enjoyable part of the whole ceremony for the people. The priest would lay his hands, on, on, uh, both hands on the head of the live goat, the one that's still alive, right, the scapegoat. He would confess all the wickedness and the rebellion of the people of Israel, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head, as it were, symbolically, and the goat would be led away into the wilderness, and this is what the people would chant. They, were, they memorized this chant, and they would jeer uh, and say the following, bear our sins and be gone, and they would repeat it. Bear our sins and be gone, and the goat would, would Lord willing, run, <laughs> would run away and not come back. Um, after this, the high priest would take off his white garments, remember he had on, which is probably pretty bloody by this point, all the stuff he had done. He would bathe again, put on his traditional, that blue and red kind of outfit, and he would complete the, bull, uh, the burnt offerings of the bull and the goats. They would basically burn the bodies of those animals. The remains were carried outside the camp and burned. Right? They, were, they were taken outside. Hebrews 13, by the way, is going to reference Jesus as being taken outside the camp uh, as a symbol, symbol of this sacrifice. Um, so, the remains, uh, so at the conclusion of the day, the people would accompany the high priest to his home where he entered into his home, into his area, and they'd throw a big party and they would celebrate. This was Yom Kippur. This is what happened. This is how they did it. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is going to say to us is that none of those daily sacrifices on the day of, uh, or even, or, either, or the very special sacrifices on the day of atonement, none of that could do what the people hoped it would do. The purpose of all of that was to point to Jesus, right? But much of Judaism had created a religion out of that as a means to gain transformation, to gain forgiveness, and to gain access for God, but it was all a symbol, right? It was all a shadow um, of the reality of Jesus. If you go down in our, in our chapter and you look at verse 6, uh, he's going to begin to explain this to us. He says these preparations, uh, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the rituals, we talked about this, into the second, only the high priest goes once a year, and it says by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So here's, here's what these things couldn't do. Okay? And here's what they wanted, but they couldn't happen. Number one, they, there was no real transformation that took place. What do I mean by that? There was, there was no heart change that occurred by going through these rituals. Um, that's why it says here in the passage they couldn't perfect the conscience. Right? They couldn't perfect the conscience. In other words, they couldn't change anything. They experienced no change through the sacrifices of an animal. The system was flawed in that way if it was leaned on for that and um, how they constructed it. But those who approached the tent knew. I mean, think about it. The people who approached the tent knew they blew it, right? They already knew that. That's why they're coming to the tent. They already knew that. So you get there and you're like, hey, um, I got this animal. You know, I blew it. And the guy's like, well, yeah, I, I know that. That's why I'm here. That's what I did. Well, offer a goat then. Well, I did that. Well, then you're all right then. And he would walk away just as heavy, weighted with guilt and shame. Uh, he would leave just as convicted, just as hopeless as when he walked into the temple for the first time. All right? And this is kind of what's going on. This is why people in, in, in our modern culture today, fast forward to today, is why people, quote, try church, and then they say, forget about it. Right? They come, they offer a few sacrifices that the pastor told them to do, they give some money, they say some prayers, they serve the poor, but they experience no change. Right, they're giving, they're doing their thing, but there's no internal change that happens. It's the same kind of system and same kind of thing was happening during the Old Covenant. They were into trying religion, not gospel, church, not Jesus. Those are very different things. The second thing it didn't give them was there was no real forgiveness either. Matter of fact, the sacrifices were only for, do you notice this in the, when it was read, and maybe you picked this up, it says only for unintentional sins. Do you see that when the passage was read in Hebrews 9 here? Their sacrifices were for unintentional sins. You say, what, what about the intentional sins? You know, I, may, I may have a few of those. <laughs> I may have done a few of those in my life. What about intentional ones? The answer was that there was no provision in the law for intentional sins. They were called, another phrase that may be used in the Old Testament was sins of the high hand. Sins of the high hand. There was no remedy for that. For that. Even the goat that symbolized taking away sins, think about this. That goat had the potential of coming back. And would send one for a loop. Can you imagine that happening? They sent you know, the goat that kind of went away, taking away their sins. Bear our sins and be gone. Imagine that guy coming back. Billy, that goat is back. <laughs> I don't know why I, Billy is my name. Uh, our, our sins have come back to haunt it. Quick, get a gun, shoot it. You know, like it's, it's come back again. It's like Pet cemetery. It just keeps coming back again and again. You're like, get it away from here. It just keeps coming back. Next thing it didn't give. A third thing it didn't actually give was no real access to God. The average Israelite... Remember this now, could only come as far as the altar, burnt offerings, and that, that basin. It's all they could do. Priests only got to go in once in their lifetime. High priests only got into the Holy of Holies once a year. And here's the point. If only one person can enter the presence of God once a year, then the way for others to enter hasn't happened, right? There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way for the average guy to get in there. How, how do we get into that spot? And the point is that Hebrews Right, Hebrews is telling us it was all, all that was a picture to show us of Jesus. This means that the only hope for real change, the only hope for real forgiveness, the only hope for real access to God had to come through who was called the promised Messiah to bring this. And while the ancient gods asked for the blood, a blood sacrifice, the God of the Bible, Jesus gave his own blood. It's radically different. So let's look at this. Let's look at how Jesus' blood really changes us, really forgives us, and really gives us access to God. Okay, number one, there's a lot of long introduction, longer than normal, but you had to get all that to understand, all right? Number one, Jesus' blood changes us. If you look down, you'll see 
uh, how Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, 11 and 12 there, uh, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And he goes on to say, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the foul persons um, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the writer is saying that the blood of slaughtered animals under the Old Covenant did have a certain effectiveness. There's some, something did happen there. And you say, what was that? It was able to sanctify those who were ceremonially unclean to make them ceremonially clean. So their sacrifices allowed them to be able to access a certain part of the, the people of the worship area. Okay? They could participate in the worship of the community. But it was only a covering, as it were. It didn't deal with the heart. It didn't change the conscience. It didn't change people from the inside out. It only was outwardly getting them, allowing them to be part of the worship part. Even, um, you ever had someone, you ever had a uh, trouble with your conscience, right? You ever had pr- trouble with that? Right, anybody? All right, good, six of you have had trouble with your conscience before. The rest, <laughs> the rest of you don't have souls, apparently. Um, you're all zombies, that's what it is. No, um, the conscience has a, it, the conscience has a, has a divine orientation to it, okay? Let me follow me here for a second. It reaches for a source or power that is above or outside of it for evaluation, right? It's going outside trying to find, am I okay? Am I okay? What's wrong with me? It's reaching outside of itself. So you can say that the conscience involves a great deal of self-evaluation and confidence for how fit am I? Am I okay? I don't feel like I'm okay, right? Um, am, am I okay to be in the presence of someone else? Especially someone like God. Am I fit to be in that presence? That's, so a guilty conscience is a profound self-consciousness. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. A belief that something is wrong, that something is broken on the inside is what we're talking about here. It's the understanding that deep down, if people really knew you, they'd reject you. Especially God. If God really knew you, you'd think to yourself, hey, I'd never be able to stand before him. This is what a guilty conscience does. So how do we, as a people, try to solve this? We do what the Israelites did. We hang around the tent, right? We hang around the tent. We hang around the church. We offer sacrifices, maybe not of animals, okay? But time, we offer sacrifice time, we sacrifice money, we sacrifice our efforts, our gifts. In short, we worship. That's what worship is. Worship is, by, by definition, sacrifice. We're sacrificing, we're giving. Uh, but does that really work? Does that change us? By sacrificing, by worshiping, does that actually change us on the inside? Well, Hebrews 10 one and two will tell us it absolutely does not. So ever since the law has been has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It can't change them. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Right? It didn't fix anything. It didn't change the inside. So the reason that we keep making sacrifices, the reason that we keep hanging around the tent, as it were, we keep hanging around the church, we keep doing religion, is the reason we worship is because, guys, we, we, we can't get the blood off our hands, right? We, we can't get the blood off our hands. I got, I got to do something to assuage my guilty conscience, right? That profound self-consciousness that's going on there. We can't clean that. Um, we're like uh, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio's character in the movie Blood Diamond upon seeing the destructive nature of human, humanity around him and the, the kind of the illegal African diamond smugglings that were going on. He cried out in the, in the film. He said, how can God ever forgive us? 
how could he ever forgive us? How are we ever going to be able to make up for this? So even we think our guilt is not dramatically obvious, it's still, it's still, we still know that we have fallen short because we can't live up to our own standards, right? We all know that we're guilty. If you don't think you're guilty, just take the, take the standards that you hold other people to. You say, what are those? Those are the ones you go like, oh, I can't believe they did that, right? Just, just take those for a moment. Everything you've ever said that said, I can't believe they did that, and take that and, and apply whatever that is to your life. And see if you even match up to your own standards, right? This is the old Francis Schaeffer back in the day argument where he talked about if you had a tape recorder and you had it recorded every standard you ever gave to anybody else and God played that tape back. Now that's the, that's, let's go smartphone today, right? Because some of you are like, tape recorder? What is that? Smartphone. If it was stuck on record and everything you ever, every standard you ever held to anybody else. Anything you ever said, you know what, you should do that, you should not do this. Every time you said, I can't believe they did such and such. Take all of those standards, and God wants to go, okay, let's play that back at judgment. Let's just hold you to the standard of yourself that you hold to everybody else. None of us would stand. We can't even, we can't even stand up to our own standards that we hold to other people, much less, get this, God's standards when he plays those back, right? We can't even hold up to his. So we're all, we're all guilty in that way. We all still ask ourselves, we're still looking for that, how can God ever forgive us? And the Bible answers that question loud and clear with the person who work. Of Jesus. It tells us that Jesus' sacrifice, unlike the ones that we have made, whatever those sacrifices may be, our time, our money, or whatever, this blood, this sacrifice that Jesus made actually accomplishes something real. His blood has power to affect change, not only because it was the blood of God himself, but because, follow me here, because it was a willing offering, right? It was out of love. He offered himself, is what Hebrews 9 is going to tell us. It's the, it's the for me part. Do you understand that? It's the for me part that transforms us. You see, Jesus just didn't die. I mean, I think some of us have this idea. It's just an historical event that took place, and Jesus died for the sins of the world. Okay, he died. Do you understand he died for you, though? Has that hit you yet, that that part? Because that's profoundly different, right? So I'll give you an illustration. So I've got neighbors, Jack and Diana Holzen, okay? So imagine that they're, God forbid this happens, imagine their house catches on fire, all right? They come over, run over the house, you know, our house is on fire. And so I run over there and, and I say, hold on a second. I'm, a, I'm your pastor. I'm going to show you how much I love you. And I dart into their burning house and it collapses and I die. Now, they may look at that and go like, he's, that, that, this whole moving the Indiana thing has really gotten to him. He's gone crazy. I didn't, I didn't go to, I mean, was, I just went in there to show him how much I love him. Does that really show how much I love them to go run into a burning building? No. Now, let's change the story. One of the grandkids, Seth Bradley. Where's Seth? All right. Seth. It's the, well, poor, poor Seth. I'm sorry, Seth. There you are. Seth is inside the burning building. I'd do this for you, man. Um, so Seth is in the burning building, and I run over there, and, and they're like, Seth is inside. And I run in, and I rescue Seth. And I bring him out, and I die, but he survives. That's radically different to them, isn't it? Why? Because it was something done for them. It wasn't just an act. It wasn't just something that, hey, he died. Great. He died for no apparent reason. No, he died for me. He did something for me. And that's the difference in understanding the gospel, that you really get it, is that Jesus died for you and not just, just died in general. You have to understand. That's what transforms you, is he died for you. He didn't just die. That's why I love, and our culture does this, they love books and films with redemptive themes. It means something to us, right? It, sacrifices are made, right, to save somebody. You can go like all the way back to Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities and find this, right? You can see the film Last of the Mohicans, The Shawshank Redemption, The Children of Men, uh, the, the uh, musical uh, The Les Mis. I mean, you can see all those. 
There was a book uh, some years ago uh, called Through the Valley of Kwai. I don't know if you've ever read this before. It was turned into a film back in 2001 called To End All Wars, uh, starring Kiefer Sutherland. And the story is about four POWs who endure harsh treatment at the hands of their Japanese captors during World War II. And while being forced to build kind of a, a railroad through the Burmese jungle, right? They're being forced to do this, and they're, they're, it's, it's pretty bad. And Ernest Gordon, writing right this uh, biography, he says this. Let me read this to you. He says, the day's work had ended. The tools were being counted as usual. As the party was about to be dismissed, a guard shouted that a shovel was missing. The guard insisted that someone had stolen it. And of course, this was a very serious offense because one may have used it to, escape, to attempt an escape. Striding up and down the rank of men, the guard ranted and raved, working himself into a fury. Screaming in broken English, he demanded that the guilty one step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. The guard's rage reached new heights of violence. Then all die, he said, all die, he shrieked. And to show what he, that he meant what he said, he cocked his rifle, put it on his shoulder, and aimed it at the first man in the rank, prepared to shoot and to work his way down the line. At that moment, a soldier, a soldier from the Argyle Regiment stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention, and said calmly, I did it. The guard unleashed all of his whipped up hate, kicking the helpless prisoner, beating him with his fists. Still the Argyle stood rigidly to attention, chin up, though now his blood was streaming down his face. His calm silence seemed to goad the guard's rage. Seizing the rifle by the barrel, the guard lifted it high above his head and brought it down upon the skull of the Argyle, who fell limply to the ground, never to move again. And though it was perfectly clear that the man was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only because he was exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up all their comrades' body, and they marched back to camp. When the tools were recounted again at the guardhouse, it turned out the shovel wasn't missing at all. Right? Those guys, those men, you know what? They couldn't be the same after that, could they? They realized what happened. This guy, to prevent everybody from dying, stood up and said, I'll take it. Right? You, even we read that story. We're not there. We read that story, and it like, gives you chills, doesn't it? You read that and you go, like, wow, someone would do that. that that's the, that's what we say, the, that the gospel transforms you. The blood of Jesus transforms you because it changes you on the inside. You can't live the same way anymore when you really understand what he did for you. You can't continue on on the same path anymore, right? It transforms you. Someone died. They shed their blood. That's what Jesus did. It transforms us. Number two, Jesus' blood also forgives us. Down in verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the picture the writer gives us is an, is an altar and a people and a book, all dripping with blood. It's very gory. And this gorgeous tabernacle, as well as its tapestries, its golden tent poles, the priestly vestments, all dripped with blood. It's all covered with blood. So the point was to tell us that sin must bring a forfeiting of life. Sin demands death. But the problem we face is that neither the shedding of the blood of animals nor the shedding of our own blood will bring about forgiveness. The very fact that they kept having to do this again and again proved that it didn't work, right? It didn't, it didn't work. We needed a substitute. And so in steps Jesus, in steps God himself, who offered himself, the text says, once for all. It gives us eternal redemption. Not temporal, eternal is what it says. Now, you may say, but if God wants to forgive us, he's God. Why don't he just do it? Why doesn't God just go like, forgiven? 
He's, he's all powerful, right? He, he could just he could just do that. Why all this blood stuff? I mean, this stuff is like really over the top. I mean, this is like making me queasy. Like, why all the blood? Why don't God, wasn't God just go just forgive everybody, and be done with it? One reason we could say, as we said all along, is that's just how serious God takes sin here. Okay, that's part of it. He's not content to, as it were, sweep it under the rug of the universe. God is too holy and too just and righteous to just wink at sin and be like, yeah, it's okay, we'll just let that go. None of us want that. We, we want that for ourselves, right? But we don't want that for everybody else. I don't want God to wink at that. I don't want, you see the things that they did? That can't just, that can't just, just let it go. Something has to be done for that, right? We, we intuitively want justice because we're made in the image of God. We want that, and God is just, okay? But I think there's another answer for why the blood. Why, why in the world did, did God require blood? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, summarizes it really well. We've talked about this before, but this one little tiny sentence is so powerful. Here's what he said. All forgiveness is suffering. All forgiveness is suffering. And here's what we mean. We, said, we talk about forgiveness. You've got three options when someone sins against you. Right? You can either make the person pay through vengeance, right? make, them, make them pay every ounce of that, or you can withdraw into a cocoon and be like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let it go. No, you can't, but you try. Or you can pay for it yourself. Those are the only three options that forgiveness offers, right? First option, make them pay through vengeance. But if you choose to do that, right, make them pay, then that, that evil that you're, you're making them pay for is actually passing into you in the process. You eventually become jaded and enjoy and even wanting them to suffer for what they did. That option doesn't really work. Revenge never solves the problem. The second option, you can choose to withdraw and just, you know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just forget about it. I'll act like nothing ever happened. And you can just kind of lick your wounds and not, and you know what'll happen? You, you, you know what? I just won't, I won't risk anymore. I'm not going to put myself out there anymore. I'm not going to be vulnerable to people anymore. I'm not going to open up to anybody anymore. And so you kind of just grow callous and you kind of grow cold. And that option doesn't work either. And I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all the entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Right, that's, the, that's the second option. That's not a good option, is it? It's not a good option. But if you choose a third option, that is you actually choose to forgive the person, then guess what happens? You have to suffer for, for it, right? You have to suffer for it. There's no other way around. That's what Bonhoeffer is getting at. All forgiveness is suffering, right? If you've ever really been wronged by somebody, you know what this is like. Because to forgive somebody is not to bring it up to yourself again, not to bring it up to them or to others. I'm going to bury this, I'm going to forgive this, and I'm not going to treat you any differently. You had a heart, you suffer for that, right? You wake up every day and like, okay, I can't, I can't have vengeance on them, I can't, I, I've got to forgive them. And you've got to work really hard. There's a lot of work you have to do for the wrong that's been done to you. Do you see what Bonhoeffer's saying now? All forgiveness is suffering. You suffer, someone's going to suffer for it. Think about God, Okay. We, we ruined his creation, we destroyed the human race, we, we kill each other, we steal from each other, we destroy families, we kill babies, we pillage our planet, and we have, we have basically told God, and you can just go away, right? We, we got this, we don't need your help. And so God has three options, doesn't he? God has three options. He can make us pay, right? And, uh, and because he's righteous, he can do that, it won't pass into him, he can do that. 
no ill effect upon him. He can enact justice without becoming corrupt in the process. So he can do that. It's called hell. You can just pay for, you can pay for it, right? We can pay for it. The second option is not possible for God, for God is too holy to do that, okay? Um, you think God's just going to sit back in his proverbial chair and just kind of like, okay, I'm just going to let all this stuff go. He can't do that. He's just and holy. He can't let it go. So that leaves only the third option. Either we pay it, option one, or number three, in order to forgive, he must suffer then. Do you understand now why Jesus had to suffer and die? All forgiveness is suffering. God had to suffer. He has to take it onto himself. He had to absorb our sin into himself, and to kill sin without killing us in the process required that. That's the meaning of the cross. That's why he died. All forgiveness is suffering. God had to suffer in order to forgive our sin, or we pay for it, right? So the cross truly does forgive. Number three, lastly. So Jesus' blood changes us, it forgives us. Number three, Jesus' blood admits us. And this is really a big part of what Hebrews is getting after, right? It gives us access to God. Remember one of the main problems the writer has with religion as they constructed it around the law and sacrifices was that it couldn't gain access to God. It, it couldn't get a rela- relationship with God. Only one person a year had access. We wouldn't consider that a good relationship, right? If you, if you met your spouse once a year, every year, one day a year, I wouldn't consider that a good marriage, right? That's not a, probably gonna, not going to go well in the long run. We meet once a year, right? That, that's not, we wouldn't define that as a good relationship, okay? That, that's what's going on here. We, there had to be more than this one time a year for one person. Remember, the high priest had to go into the most holy place alone for the people, and he couldn't go, but they couldn't go with the people, right? He couldn't, he couldn't even take another priest with him. He had to go all by himself. But Jesus takes people with him all the way into the most holy place, and he pulls back the veil, and he says, come on in, right? That's the, the transformation. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to, had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He just had to complete, just keep dying over and over again. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all sacrifice. He didn't have to do it, he didn't have to continually repeat it like the Old Testament priests did. He went in behind the veil, as it were, slammed down his own blood, and ripped the veil open from top to bottom and said, come on in. There's, there's no longer chains on the door. There's no curtain anymore. There's no need to peek in to see if maybe we can get a little peek inside there. We have instant and total access to the king of the universe. And we still don't appreciate that, right? We don't appreciate that at all. We, don't, we, we lose track of that. It's like our communication today. Right? We, we used to walk down the street to talk to somebody. And then we went to a place where we could pick up our phone in our house and call somebody. And then we got Wi-Fi and we can, in our smartphones, and we can instantly text somebody and instantly contact them. We don't even consider the crazy miracle that we can actually talk to somebody. How crazy. I can pick up my phone. I can talk to anybody across the entire world. We're numb to that. We're numb to access. We're numb to the easiness of access. And we're numb to the easiness of access to God of the universe who made us, who we should be barred from his presence but has made access for us, right? It's a, that's a crazy miracle. And if you read this chapter closely, you will see that the image of Jesus' death taking place was inside, you notice in the, in the language that may be confusing to you, inside of a heavenly temple? Sounds kind of bizarre. And here's what's going on. When Jesus died on the cross, the Father looked at it as if Jesus walked into the temple, the true one in heaven, and there on the mercy seat, Jesus died. He was the true and better sacrifice to which all the other sacrifices pointed to. And it was, 
as he's talking about, it was the culmination of human history. It was the apex of God's story was right there with the cross when Jesus died. So if you look at chapter 9, verse 26, it says that he was manifested at the end of the ages. Do you see that? The death of Jesus is not just a one-time, a one-event in a line of similar historical events. When it happened, history came to a climax, as it were. The first coming of the Messiah and the second coming are seen as the, in the Bible as one great closing act of the play, as it were. The time between is seen as a kind of extension of God's mercy, where God gathers his people from all nations to himself. Jesus' death was not just another merely human event. It was the culmination of history and the apex of the gospel story. And then down to verse 27 and 28, it tells us that it was all based upon appointment. We were divinely appointed, it says, to die once, and so Jesus was divinely appointed to die once too. It's not happening again. It's not happening again. When he comes back, he's gathering those who believed in him, and there won't be a dry eye among us, right? He's coming back to gather us all together. So let me wrap it up with this thought. Remember the, the Day of Atonement we talked about at the beginning, the whole day, the ceremonies he went through? Remember the rituals the high priest had to go through? He emerged from his home, walked among the people to the tabernacle. He offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people with the goat and all of that. And then he released the other goat, remember, symbolizing the sins of the people. The people would jeer, right? Bear our sins and be gone, was kind of the idea. High priest took the blood inside the veil. He, the people waited breathlessly, hoping he would come out. There'd be a chain around his ankle in case he died. They would pull him back out because no one's going to go get him. <laughs> so they would pull him back out. They were just hoping he would emerge from that, from that place. And when they did, they would all rent the air with applause and they'd celebrate. Remember that whole scene? That's what they would do. Now think of Jesus as our high priest. He emerged from his home of heaven, walked among us, rubbed shoulders with us. He made his way down the Via Della Rosa. Remember, he made his way down carrying that cross among jeers of people, right? And the jeers of the people, was, it was not bear our sins, but rather the jeers were what? Be gone. That's what they cried. Just be gone. Get out of here. We don't want you. He went to a cross. He went behind the veil, as it were. He, he died. When he died, the curtain that separated God from man was ripped in two. And now, in heaven where he remains as it, as it were behind the curtain. We all wait breathlessly here on earth for him to emerge, to come back. And when he does, and he steps out from behind the curtain, as it were, and he comes back for a second coming, we will rent the air with applause as we go back to gather with him, to forever be with him on new heavens and new earth. That's exactly what the high priest did. And that's exactly what Jesus came to fulfill, every single bit of that. That's the story of the Bible. That's what he came to do. So as we, as we go to communion, as we go to think about these elements that Jesus made available to us, right? For true forgiveness, true access to God, right? We can, we can truly be there. We can truly have a changed life. He can transform us. If you've never experienced change, you've never had your heart changed from the inside out. So some of the guys and men were sharing this morning in our Sunday school class uh, for the men. He was talking, they were talking about the true transformation. They've been in church a long time, but there came a day where God got a hold of them and he truly transformed them from the inside. They truly got that Jesus died for them and not just died in general. They were done playing the game, done playing the church games and showing up and leaving, show up and leaving and writing down some neat points here or there. God transformed. Have you ever experienced that? If you have not, this is, maybe this is the morning, this is the day of your salvation that you truly come all the way to Christ. Have you been truly forgiven? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced transformation? Do you know you have access to God? As we go to a time of quiet, we're going to do that. It's going to be, and we let you kind of reflect on, on what God has presented here in Hebrews 9. And then we have communion. We have bread, we have juice, right? The bread, front and the back. This is not a re-sacrificing of Jesus, okay? 
We just talked about that. He died once for all. This is not what we're doing here, okay? That this is simply a remembrance, a celebration of what took place one time, right? And so we do it in remembrance of him and in anticipation that he will come back soon. And we give our offerings as a response. So if you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to do that. If you're not comfortable with that, if you want someone to pray for you, if you just need, have some needs, if you don't know Christ, there'll be people to pray for you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this chapter. Thank you for Jesus that you have truly, you truly offer change in us. You offer true forgiveness. You offer true access to the God of the universe. It is outstanding fact that we can hear and we can talk to you right now where we are and that you hear us. God, we forgive us for taking advantage of that, for forgetting that, uh, for not spending the time with you as, as we should. God, I pray that as we go to communion that you would help us to reflect on those areas that, God, maybe there's somebody we really need, really to, need to really forgive. Maybe there's some resentment and bitterness that we've held up and pent up and have not dealt with. May God this be the day we deal with those things. May God we experience both real forgiveness for ourselves and real forgiveness for others. And may God you overwhelm us with the access that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.